0: 29 Buckets and Dan Sportsland on this beautiful November day. Dan, we've been talking about it. We've been hyping it up to each other, at least. This could be a top 10 episode.
1: Yeah, a lot of great content. Two great interviews. Ian Harditz of PFF Fantasy Football He comes on to give us a mid year report. And we have our good friend and newest golf correspondent filling in for the hole in one segment with our Masters preview that obviously kicked off today. But we talked to Jimmy Abbott yesterday. That's a great interview, and we got a very comprehensive breakdown. Stole that right from the Lockdown Bills. Very comprehensive breakdown of this Cardinals-Bills game, but we'll also touch on the Seahawks-Bills game. Yeah, Dan, before we get into the
0: Q&A, I mean, not to to start on a depressing note, but, you know, it's mid-November. This would be the time as basketball guys, you know, this is kind of a great part of the season because you got through the first few days. You probably made your cuts, and now you're, like, starting to put the team together. Feeling excited about things, you're zero and zero, and you know we're just far, far away from that. Dan, the last time I shot a basketball was in a probably a brick in a healthy Buffalo league in, in March. I can't even imagine trying to trying to throw up a rock right now.
1: Yeah, I certainly miss playing in the mornings and I was getting some sort of cardio into my life. But we actually just had we're coming off a a Zoom meeting with our players for the the high school program which I coach with and. It's interesting. You could tell the players are bummed. Like, they're not stupid. We could try to hype it up and talk about how we might be doing this, might be doing that, but you could tell they're bummed. It's only, what, a few months into school, and they're already dragging. I mean, one kid piped up and said, you know, Coach, I understand all, everything you're saying, like holding us accountable, and, you know, it's because it, I, I made a big point out, it's just life's little choices. Are you going to choose to go to bed and get a good night's sleep, or are you going to play a video game till 4 in the morning? A lot of that I decide on Saturday nights and whatnot, but Um, And the kid was like, yeah, like, I get that, but when we're in school, like, there's a structure, there's routine, we're looking forward to practice, where there's, again, structure, there's a warm-up, there's laps, it's like this. Now, you wake up and it's like, well, there's school, I guess, but there's so much break in between, there's nothing to look forward to after, so I really feel for these kids, it must suck being a student athlete right uh, now. Absolutely, and
0: speaking of, you know, things being shut down, and, you know, everything's in question right now, Uh, very delicate time in New York State. Dan, I, I had to pull the trigger and get NHL 21. So we could be on to a new buckets is trying to get the uh, Stanley cup with uh, the Sabres in 2021. That could be fun.
1: Yeah. They got the updated jerseys. They're updating their rosters constantly. I was surprised. I didn't even hear that it was coming out. I certainly pulled the trigger too. So for our nerd listeners, we'll definitely get some more content with that, but let's get back to some sports here. We're actually not going to do a Q and a, if you don't mind, cause I already have That's everything fine. edited. So we'll just hit on these three topics. It's we mentioned this throughout the episode at various points. Could be an all-time Sunday. We got the Masters final round. We have that leading right into Bills Cardinals. Let's talk about the Masters today. Paul Casey putting on a show. I was able to watch here and there. Saw Tiger at some big shots. Saw DeChambeau, saw, excuse me, saw DeChambeau struggle off the tee with that gigantic driver. Dude, his torque is so funny on his swing. You know who also has a hilarious swing is Bubba Watson. The ball path on Bubba Watson's is unbelievable that he just plays with that Um, but yeah this is going to be an all-time weekend i mean dan i'm not the guy to
0: get you know too caught up in the emotion of day one it's certainly fun and you can certainly put yourself in good position not a huge fan of um, non-american golfers but if there is one guy i would love to see win a masters it is paul casey in his mid 40s He's had some very, very close, close calls and some big-time major championships. If you recall, he lost very, very slightly to Morikawa earlier in the year. He's a great guy, and I would be happy to
1: see him make a serious run on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely, and obviously for the... For the common viewer, like I would say, I am seeing Tiger hit shots and be very positive afterward was awesome to see John Ram put on a show. I haven't been able to catch the late stuff, so I don't know how the big names are doing down the stretch here, but it should be an awesome weekend, and we really dive into that with, with Jim Jimmy Abbott, Abbott in our hole-in-one segment later on. So,
0: and, Yeah, a couple things about that. Number one is Jimmy, he tried his best, which is, what, which is all you want, which is all you want. Number two, Dan, speaking of underdogs, there was just huge news over this weekend, and it's kind of been um, really a breath of fresh air. It's one of the most passionate fan bases that I've grown to grown to love, um, and they've really become one of my favorite teams in all of sports. And, Dan, I know you've loved them since you were literally in diapers, so I really want to ask your general emotions. I mean, it's official now. Steve Cohen is the official owner of the New York Mets.
1: He's made of money I mean, what are your thoughts on everything right now as a Met fan? It's funny. On paper, I should be ecstatic about this, and I'm certainly happy he said all the right things. But as a Buffalo fan, I can't tell you how eerily similar his press conference was to the Terry Pagula press conference that we all look back at and mock when he took over the Savers. And if you just go through it, again, he comes out, he immediately starts talking about watching the game as a fan, how he'd take the train over, go with his buddies, he'd watch playoff games. He his dad's had season tickets for decades. Similar to Terry Begula talking about pulling over on the throughway or whatever and listening to the playoff game on the car AM radio. He talks about championship expectations. And one thing it's one thing I did not like. He talked about how you know, putting a timetable on something I think is such a bad move from an owner or GM or anything. Agree. Saying that, you know, it would be a disappointment if they didn't win the World Series. Slight disappointment. In three to, yeah, slight disappointment winning the World Series in three to five years. There's only one team a year that wins the World Series, and I think the Mets are far from being that team. Um, so I, I hate that, but it reminds me of Pagula talking about hockey heaven and that bull crap. And, like, how many quotes, if you think about it, can we pull from that Pagula press conference and mock out now? But one thing that really stuck out is he wants to have a blueprint for winning, and he's quoted saying, I'm not trying to make money here. I have my day job for that. Who does that sound like? Yeah, Pagoula like, saying, I'll drill I guess, another hole or whatever. I guess it sounds said. like any
0: owner, though. They all are made of money. I agree with you, Dan. Keep, but Keep going.
1: Yeah, I'm going to keep going. You know, I think the, the, way, the way I look at it is the big difference is the money is obviously a big difference. I mean, Pagula's money came from something that ended up being not very sustainable in the – High, uh, fracking business, and he, his net worth is plummeted. But if you look at net worth, I, our good friend Cole Coyle sent this over. It's hilarious to look at the second richest owner in terms of net worth in Major League Baseball is the Nationals owner, and forgive me, I forget his name, but the Nationals owner at $14.8 billion, or excuse me, I do that every time, $4.8 billion. Steve Cohen, as of that report, is listed at $14.6 billion, nearly $10 billion richer than the next owner. So I saw somebody say, "Well, you gotta be careful. You could become the next Artie Moreno, you know, throwing stupid money at people like C.J. Wilson and stuff like that for the Angels, or you can do it smartly, like the Dodgers ownership group." So he he said everything that you'd want him to say. How they're gonna bind analytics, that they're gonna have academies, and they're gonna have it starts. And you know, it's not you can't go buy a championship. He said it starts with homegrown talent, which he says there's a lot of, which I could agree to disagree with him there. And I'm just trying to stay cautious, cautiously optimistic. Um. But again, it, it's, it has a lot to do with the fact that I rel- or Excuse me, I lived this once with Pagula, but it's awesome. Like right away, Strowman, who I have my my thoughts on Strowman as a person, but objectively, he was the second best pitcher about to hit the market. And as soon as Cohen had his press conference, he locked in his qualifying offer, which nearly everybody said he was going to pass on. So, Trevor Bauer has been. They, you know, Sandy Ald. It was mentioned in the press conference. Sandy Alderson said, "Yeah, I think." Uh, Bauer's a big market guy. He'd, he'd love it here. And Bauer said, you know, he's one. Of, that's one of the first times he's heard an executive or anybody say he's a big market guy b- it, because they say his personality clashes and stuff like that. So it seems like he really appreciated that. And if they can go sign the two best pitchers on the open market, that'd be pretty wild to do. Dan, how cool. <laughs>
0: it's kind of weird. I don't think I've ever seen it before. But an executive and a pitcher t- tweeting back and forth at yep. each other, Stroman saying, I'll play for that guy, and then <laughs> – Cohen saying, I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's been unbelievable on Twitter. He really has. And he's been interacting with Cindergard, who's going through his rehab. I and mean, if you can get him back at some point the next year, and you go out and sign another big name, and whether it's Bauer or not, and you, your rotation is DeGrom, Cindergard, Stroman, whatever big name, and then that David Peterson, that rookie that came up, I mean, it starts with starting pitching. And one thing I saw, and what helps the Mets right now is this COVID stuff that ironically – Cohen got even richer on being a hedge fund guy. I don't know how hedge funds work, but I know he made his money off nine 11 and COVID two horrible things to happen to humanity. But what's happening is that it's going to flood the markets and teams are not going to be able to pay these gigantic uh, contracts and the relief market's going to be flooded. And you know, you know me, I hate, there's not many things that I hate more than the Mets manager coming out and calling to the bullpen. It's just been such a disappointment basically since I was a kid. Um, So it, I do have a lot of optimism. It was it was a fun press conference to listen to, but I'm not going to buy in until I see some actual moves and more importantly, some actual production on the field. And they've already talked about keeping their manager, who I'm not really all in on. But again, if you start I you winning, I could year. I'm, you know I'm fair weather. I'll flip right around and tell them the World Series favorites. Hey, let me ask you this: I you know I've done a little research
0: on some guys who are potential free agents. How about, you know, and the Mets are kind of notorious for signing guys maybe a couple years too late. Yeah. Let me ask you about George Springer. He's from Connecticut. Um, It's obviously a train ride from Shea or from Citi Field, and to me he's 31 years old. He's still producing at a high level. They need another bat, right? I mean, is that a guy who could potentially fit the bill?
1: The thing is they need a center fielder, and – it seems like center fielder and catcher, every team has a good young catcher, good young center fielder. The Mets haven't had either in a long time, and they keep trying to plug guys in here and there. Center fielders, to me, I mean, you got, it starts up the middle. Your catcher and your center fielder are your two most important fielders. <clears throat> Maybe you could throw a shortstop in there too, but – I right away said George Springer. I was immediately brought back down to earth by our good friends Pat Kaplan, who said he's thirty one years old. How many more years can he really play center field? I know he's been playing a lot of corner outfield with the Astros, but yeah, I mean there's guys like that. There's guys like JT Riomuto, the best catcher on the market, and he can hit the crap out of the ball. But how many more years is it realistic that he can Two? sit behind yeah, sit behind the plate and do that? And what's really going to influence the Mets and a lot of teams is if they keep this DH. They seem to love Dom Smith, and I'm going to be very honest. I don't know if it was a political and social ploy to put him next to DeGrom on their new season ticket thing, being how he was all in on the Black Lives Matter stuff. But they... If they do look at him as a corner piece, then what does that mean for Pete Alonso, who they also absolutely love? Can you throw Alonso as a full-time DH? Because Smith is phenomenal in the field, and he can hit, and he needs every day at bats. He's not an outfield. That's my point. The Mets team is constructed so poorly. I don't know how you come in and just fix it because there's there's everyone loves speed and defense, and the Mets have zero of both. I if you really want to make a splash, and I don't care, and I have Mets fans saying they wouldn't give up this rookie that just came up in their top, in one of their top prospects, whatever, for Francisco Lindor or him? I don't understand. And again, I, I would say that it has to, a lot to do with the contract. Like if Lindor agrees to sign long-term before coming here, if you have a chance to go get a top 15 player in baseball, I don't care what you're giving up. If your goal is to win a World Series in three to five years, these top prospects are not going to be the keys to your team in three years. Francisco Lindor is 26 years old. Yeah. He has 10 more years of good baseball. Eight to ten more years left of good baseball as, at that position. And he's he's not just – like, he's a five-tool guy. He's not just – he doesn't just rely on speed or whatever. He can he Yeah, be, I think he's the Mookie Betts of the infield, man. He's awesome. Exactly. He does everything. That's a great comparison. That's a great comparison. So, it'll depend on the moves. And it's super exciting, like – but. It, and it's funny that, like, being a Mets fan, I feel like this. Like, when the Sabres came in and Pagula, everyone's like, oh, now we're actually in for Brad Richards, and we're in for all these free agents. Then Akposo signed a few years after that, and I was like, wow, it's cool seeing the Sabres relevant. That That's how we've been as Mets fans in one of the – probably the largest market in American sports, New York City. We've been the little brother for so long, and we've been able to, you know, get lucky, and, and that's my point about – like having a world, like obviously you should have a world, I don't want must to Texas. Obviously the goal should be to win the World Series. I understand that. It's just a lofty goal to come as an owner right away and say that when every year you need it to be good and very lucky to win the championship. And there's only one a year. So I, I just want to pump the brakes on my excitement. I've, been, I've had my heart crushed too many times by the Mets, so I, I don't want to go all in just yet. Absolutely. Let's touch on another fun thing around here. The UB football team has been absolutely spanking opponents. And I'll tell you what, you want some entertainment. With sports dying down, you want some entertainment Tuesday and Wednesday nights, you dive into the action. It was unbelievable last night. That Toledo-Western Michigan ending was one of the best endings to any— that was like a Little League ending, doing the fake spike to win the game after recovering an onside kick, after being down two scores, less than three minutes to go— That is Maction Baby, and the class of the Mac is clearly the UB Bulls who have put beatdowns on Northern Illinois and Ohio. And I know Ohio is without their starting quarterback, but that kid came in and did great the first week. So, Buckets, what are your thoughts on the UB football team after two weeks? I love them. It's so
0: fun to watch. Um, You know, football in Buffalo is great right now. Dan, they're averaging over 45 points a game. Okay, they've, had, they've rushed for nearly 400 yards through two games. Now, that's to be expected with the two really good running backs that they have, especially Jared Patterson, and Marks has ran really well as well. I mean, he, he played great last night. Dan, to me, this is going to be a very, very fun ride. I think you said the class of the MAC, and I think you're right, Dan. They're going up against a Bowling Green team next week that just allowed 62 points to Kent State. I mean... And then before that, they lost to the Toledo 38-3, to okay? So that's a team that's that's not feeling so great about themselves right now. You know, as long as they don't look by them, I think that they can continue to keep their scoring pace, you know, doing really well. But I love Antonio Nunn. I really like Kyle Vantries. I said that at the beginning of the year. I love their coaching staff. Obviously, we got a couple friends, and we, we love Coach Gildersleeve now being a, a guest of the show. So, Dan, I'm really excited about it, and you would probably know maybe more than me about this, but, you know, thinking about how COVID has changed the landscape of sports and how it will change the landscape of sports beyond COVID, I mean, if, if you're the Mac, I know they got some Saturday games lined up towards the end of the year, but, man, they can really steal a Tuesday, Wednesday night, even when you got early season NBA and NHL going, right? I mean, I what else is there agree. on ESPN? And- so they could potentially, I mean— keep that as a staple mac and make it one or two nights and, and and don't don't sway from that
1: because the competition on Saturdays is way too great. Yeah, I completely agree and I think people don't watch mac football to be like I can't wait to watch perfect pristine non, you know, mistake-free football. They but watch it's great knowing it's going to be entertaining and especially with limited sports right now. I have a question like is it crazy to think if they keep just walloping teams like this and more and more teams are dropping games because of COVID. If UB is lucky enough to stick with their record, could they sneak in the top 25? Or are they that? I don't understand. I don't know how many teams are actually playing. I, think, I don't know. I think with what you're saying, you're onto something because
0: hey, they've done it in basketball, right? So it's not. I mean, I know they're two different sports, right. but That's a MAC team,
1: and you're right, Dan. Teams are dropping out. Like I Coastal Carolina is s- in the top, and that Coastal Carolina very well. May be very good, but I don't understand. Like, that's not crazy to think that UB is on that level. Yeah,
0: obviously they can't lose. I mean, that's Correct. They won loss and it, yes. there's no shot at yep. it. But if they win five, six, if, seven games, then. And I think there might only be seven. So, yeah, I think at the end of the season, that's a potential, you know, are there bowl games? I I heard there are, and man, if they can. Again, I don't want to get like, too far ahead of myself. Let's just be a
1: super optimistic. If they go undefeated and, like, demolish every team, maybe one close game that they sneak out or get lucky, that would be fun seeing them match up against, like, a lower-tier Power 5 conference team.
0: Yeah, I think that instead of being in the – let's think of uh, let's think of a lower-end toilet paper. Uh, what's that? Scott. You know, yeah. instead of being in the Scott toilet paper bowl, maybe you move up to, like, the Cottonelle, you know, yeah. toilet paper bowl or something the like Charmin. that. So, the Charmin. So, you know, I hey, we're looking up and up, and I'm
1: excited about it. You know, something to do, something to watch, and something to root for. Absolutely. And let's go back to that original topic, the Masters. Let's throw it over to our hole-in-one segment with Jim Abbott. Here we go.
2: It's all in it It's all Get it off of me! Oh, Son oh. of a bitch, Paul, why didn't you just go home? That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Answer me!
1: Talk about a hole in one. It is officially Masters weekend, and we have a brand new Buckets and Dan correspondent to our Hole in One segment. However, you may know him from his basketball correspondent days from Buckets and Dan on 90.5 The Dragon in our college days, or you may just know him from his unwavering love of milkshakes, Dermot Kennedy, low-calorie beer, and Kyle Lowry, but today he is going to share his golf knowledge with us. Welcome back to the program, Mr. Jim Abbott.
3: Dan, it's a great introduction. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, Jim Buckets here. How are you doing today?
3: Hey, Bucks. I'm good. Yourself?
0: Good. And we're, we're so Jim. Obviously, um, the golf schedule was kind of put in a, in a in a tailspin this year with with everything COVID related. But they've had you know to to the most extent a, a successful PGA season. The Masters, typically in April, is taking place here. This weekend in November, by the time Hannon gets around to editing this segment, it'll probably be through with day one of the Masters, but we're going to treat it like the day it is, Veterans Day 11-11. Okay. And let's do a little preview here, Jim. So as you look at the field, um, just your overall impressions of what this weekend can bring and in, in maybe, you know, what it can bring in November rather than April.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, I should probably preface this by saying that I do absolutely terrible in every golf, pool, and fantasy thing I'm in. So, uh, perfect. Take this with a grain of salt here. Um, but if there's one course that can handle, uh, you know, fall wetness, if you will, it's Delaware Park, and then probably Augusta with the sub bears. So we should be fine. Looks like it's going to be dry. Uh, high seventies. It looks like So a lot of short sleeves on uh, live from the Masters today. So I think it's going to be playing. Um, Normal temperature-wise, it doesn't seem like it's going to be too windy, some rain, but uh, I think it's going to be playing pretty similar to April. You know, there's, the grass will be a little different. It um, doesn't sound like they're overseeding like the rye they usually do, or Bermuda might be a little baked at this point, but it should be uh, pretty similar, I think.
0: And, you know, let's talk about the big guns here, okay? So, you know, Bryson's been the talk of everything. He's He's had a very good year. Um, he's kind of been the talk of golf, talking about having a 48 inch driver and what what not this weekend. Um, you know, of of the big guns, who do you feel most confident in in making a deep, solid run this weekend? I mean, John Ram has been the talk of the week with his skipping off the water, hole in one, um, in the practice round too. So it's been a kind of an interesting uh, come up to this weekend.
3: Yeah, I think Bryson's going to win by like a million, and uh, I think we're all going to look pretty dumb by not picking him this time uh, this time Sunday or Monday. Um, but we should say that there's an asterisk on this tournament, obviously, with no Sergio. Um, so I got to think it's more of a half-major at this point. But, yeah, I think Bryson's going to win by a lot. And
0: uh, Really? Why do you say I that? Think this...
3: <laughs> I mean, if he did what he did at Wingfoot here, where you can really get away with spraying the ball um, – I mean, he's gonna be having wedge or nine iron into four par fives every day, so he's almost starting at sixteen under if you look at it that way. And I think, you know, Rory Brooks, DJC, now they can get to that point as well. But it's just such a different ball game if he's hitting it anywhere near the way he hit it at Wingfoot.
1: Jim, what's a normal length for a driver that they're making such a big deal that Shambo is nearly forty eight inches?
3: I think it's forty-four and a half of stock. Like if you just buy a buy a driver from like Golf Galaxy, I think it's that. I tried taking an inch off the shaft last year, and it was a huge mistake because my club had speed is about eighty-five miles per hour. I lost about twenty <laughs> yards off the tee and hurt my elbow. So, uh, do not go down as an amateur. I don't think is the play. So going up might make more sense.
1: Jim, is there any? Do you put any stock into the fact that Brooks Kepka kind of seems like? Your, I don't know, like your most, uh, uh, I don't know. I guess like in terms Relatable. of in terms of athlete wise, like he can really look at a rival and feed off that. Obviously, it's a little different with no crowd. But now that Deschamps has had some success and he has clearly butted heads with Kepka in the past, and Kepka kind of fell off last time. He opened up his mouth. Do you, do you look at that as any extra motivation for Kepka this weekend? Oh
3: yeah, I think I think Brooks is back. Played good last week. Uh, I said he's healthy. Knee and hip look good, they say. Um, yeah, I, I would say I would say he's probably a good top 10 guy. Um, I mean, I hope he wins. I think that'd be sweet to get that rivalry back with him and Bryson. Um, he was tied for second there last year, like a pretty quiet tie for second. He had a good chance. He missed a putt, I think, on 17. Um, so he was right there last year.
1: Jim, do you want to address any of the rumors that Kepka's bit of a downfall came after the Jared Passman wedding video was released, and he saw his girlfriend's elated face walking down the aisle next to you?
3: Um, you know, people uh, have mentioned that a lot. I think he kind of got a little off course. I haven't seen him drinking or posting much about Mick Ultra as well mm-hmm. in the last year or so. I don't know if that's injuries. Yep. But, um, you know, any golfer, I tell you, you know, you stop drinking the Ultras, your game's going to suffer a bit.
1: Uh, and, listen, you're talking to a very novice golf guy. Tell me, what are, what, what's Tiger looking at? Is he healthy? Is he ready to rock and roll? What, what are your expectations of the great Tiger Woods?
3: Uh, I mean, he looked terrible at the Zozo. <laughs> well, I think that was the last time he played. Um, but, yeah, he could probably – he'll probably be fine as long as he's
1: healthy. <laughs> Who could say, really? Right, then. Jim, you're, you're supposed to say it. <laughs> Hey, Jim, uh, I gotta, uh, oh, Jim, I got a question for you, okay? You got to rank
0: these three guys. How are they going to finish on Sunday? Um, I'm asking because I'm about to be up in my golf pool, and I'm going to have the, the the option to pretty much the top guys available will either be DJ, Rory, or Brooks. How do you think those three finish? Who's got the best chance to win of those three?
3: Uh, I'd go DJ. He was tied second last year. He, I think, he tied second last week. He was right there in Houston. Uh, looks like he's back. He had COVID like a month ago and had to miss out. But he was playing unreal in the playoffs. He went we a win, win, second or win, second, win in the last three playoff events. Um, so I go with him. Um, Rory would be awesome. You know, get the career Grand Slam. Calling for him, and uh, then probably Brooks. So I'd, I'd go DJ Rory Brooks in that order there.
0: Let's talk quickly about Rory because he, um, you know, obviously a huge name, but it's it's been a while, Jim, since he's had sustained success, right? I mean, he's kind of just been, you know, kind of in the background over the past couple of years. Am I right by saying that?
3: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, he hasn't won a major since 2014, uh, which is crazy because it looked like he was going to win two a year right after that. Um, what was it? 2018. He played with Reed in the final group and just did nothing. Shot 74. I didn't challenge at all. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's time for him.
0: Hey, and let's talk about you know we talked about the big guns, the big names throughout this tournament. Jim, are there any under the radar guys? So talk to our our, our our listeners who are who are gonna fire up maybe a Haberman pool, maybe a fan duel, <laughs> maybe a DraftKings and, and obviously you gotta balance out your lineups. You know, it can't be stud, 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 stud. You're gonna have to have some some guys who are who are less expensive and any guys kind of maybe their game appeals to, to Augusta that we might not think of at the top of our head.
3: Yeah, I I mean, Finau's probably in the top 12 betting favorites. I think he's going to play well. He was final group last year. Um, I like Hideki, Uh, and the Greens are so funky here that it kind of balances out as bad putting to a point. Um, Matt Wolf's has been playing good in uh, some majors here. He seems to be a bit of a big game hunter. He's streaky. Like He can go 75-75 miss the cut, or he could be in the final group on Sunday. And Tyrell uh, Hatton might be the best golfer in the world. That's not really getting much play. He's been on an absolute heater since the tour started back up again in was it June, july Did you say Tyrell Hatton? Um, I think Hatton? He's, he's a stud.
0: Tyrell Hatton?
3: Yeah. Okay. He's not nearly as long as some of these guys, but he putts it really well. And uh, he hates himself, so he's a treat to watch. He absolutely despises himself on the golf course, really. <laughs> Really, really gets gets mad at himself. Uh, so I hope he's in it. It's good viewing when he's in it.
1: Jim, would you say that if this is a close finish down the stretch and then leading right into Bills at Cardinals, this could be one of this could be a Sunday for the ages, as they say?
3: I, I think so. I think we've, we we kind of had this one circled a while ago, right? When we saw the Bill schedule, um, sounds like they're going to go off early. Split tees on Saturday. I don't know if they're doing that Sunday as well. So it, should be wrapped up by three. Um, they're going to be fighting daylight, so it could be could be unbelievable,
0: Jim. You know, it, and you're going to be the king of this. It's kind of a Jim Abbott day if you think about Sunday. You know, a guy who likes to keep his beverages under four percent. I mean, you're going to need to on Sundays. <laughs> it's going to be kind of a long day. Exactly. You really got to
3: definitely, definitely four equal then or less than for sure all day. Mixing in some waters. Um, I'm just trying to maybe get a little exercise in around 8:39-ish, nothing crazy, before you really settling for the couch for the day. But should be a good one.
1: What would you What would you tell our listeners is the number one go-to ultra 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 light beer that Jim Abbott will be partaking in this weekend?
3: Uh, the MGD 64s have been a big play lately. They come in at 2.8, um, which is nice, comfy level. Uh, the 67s are a little deceiving because if you get them in cans, they're really 70 calories. So you got to watch out for that. There's an extra half ounce in there. Uh, so those will sneak up on you. If you go bottles, you should be safe. It's playing, it's playing on par. Um, and then the, again, this is a sneaky good one too, especially if the weather's bad, you know, pretty low cal, low ABV and they they take a bit to drink.
0: You, you like those Michelob golden things, don't you? <laughs> they're
3: like, mm-hmm. what are those? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, the pure gold. Yeah, I think if Brooks is in uh,
1: in contention, I think that's got to be the play. Uh, well, Jim, thank you for an just ridiculously enlightening enlightening segment of our <laughs> Masters preview. We really appreciate your time, and best of luck on the course today. Thank you,
3: thank you. you. Pro- yeah, don't keep bucks too late. We gotta get them ready for yeah. all
1: of our listeners. It's a big match
0: day at Sheridan Golf Course Wednesday here, eleven eleven. We're playing for a hot chocolate. It's the likes of Jim, Double or nothing. Jim Abbott Double or and nothing. Bill Buckets versus Chad Mosher and Corey Martin. We'll see how that plays out. See if Jim can carry me to another smooth hot chocolate.
1: <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it. I'll see you there, Bucks. All righty then. Thank you, Jim. We will certainly take all that into account for our Masters weekend. But now let's talk about the Bills. Buckets, one of the most complete wins. Are, I'm sorry. Probably not complete wins, but one of the most entertaining victories of our lifetime.
0: Yeah, Dan, I don't really even know what to say. That was just fun for four quarters. I mean, just coming out and throwing the ball like that, especially a week after them, you know, they totally changed their game plan. They were so game, you know, team specific. Man, Seattle, for, they did get pressure at times, but that secondary was weak, and they were able to exploit it, and man, it, oh man, it was it fun.
1: Let's recap our keys. My first, Actually, our first key was, can the rejuvenated running game help the play action? <laughs> they did not care about the run at all, which was unbelievable. Bill Barnwell of ESPN said, from what they can track, which I believe goes back to 2005 in terms of has, but if you think about this stat, then there's no way it happened earlier than that. It was the largest run pass disparity in a first half in NFL history. They ended the game with only 12 rushing attempts outside of Josh Allen cuz some of those were passes that he turned into runs compared to 38 passes from Allen I absolutely loved it it was it's so weird seeing like a competent like good quarterback be the, at the helm of this team been fun our second st- key excuse me was let's you know my my thing was let allen cook everyone talks about let russ cook i didn't want them to hold him back at all and he balled out his second 400-yard game of the year he threw for 82% completion percentage 31 for 38 three passing touchdowns one rushing touchdown he was command from the f- in command from the first snap and it's you know what bill i was just this isn't written down but i was just thinking that titans game that first play basically the first play goes off of Actually, think about the Chiefs game off of Roberts for an interception. Then you think about that off John Brown's face in the Chiefs game. Just plays very early that you could tell, oh, man, we are screwed. Andre Roberts taking that kick, that first kick return that deep into Seattle territory. It was like, wow, this this might be okay. This might be a fun game. He didn't have any of those, oh, no, excuse me, he didn't have any of those balls that you're like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Like overthrows or, you know, underthrows or like ones that go off, you know, a linebacker's hand or something like that. And he, and he the only oh-no throws I can think of are those ones where he rolls out and you're just begging him to throw the ball away, but he doesn't. And he makes plays like that throw to Beasley where he kept the play live, kept the play live, and then Beasley makes a great catch. He's unbelievable. He's, af- he's actually the best in the league converting third and long. He was just awesome. He he's also awesome. the best
0: in the league at evading pressure. Him and Murray, obviously the matchup this week. Yeah, Dan, nothing more to add. I mean, the guy was absolutely fantastic from the start. The numbers speak for themselves. The other key was one of the big keys for me was I mean, win the turnover battle, and, and that's why we won the game. It was four to nothing, and I gotta give Seattle credit. I gotta give their offense credit. I mean, they were still able to score a bunch of points. Wilson still played well. I mean, with four
1: turnovers.
0: Four to zero in the turnover margin, that's how you win the game.
1: That play – oh actually we'll get to that for swarm tackling, actually. Yeah, that, it, it really was. And they my thing, what I thought was super impressive, they weren't lucky turnovers either. A lot of times you'll get a ball batted up in the air and it goes to a linebacker. Or, th- you know what, I th- every time I think about that, I think of how many interceptions Milano had when he was a rookie, like three years ago, that just there'd be a tip right into his hands. And you need to be around the ball to get lucky, and I totally th- agree with that. But, like, Jerry Hughes coming around and just walloping him to strip sack. And fumble recovery is luck. Depends where the ball is bouncing, but Dwayne Brown, Big dog, that wasn't a good look for you, <laughs> bending over and yeah, not he's just top heavy. Yes, not just picking it up. So that was unbelievable. AJ Klein coming untouched and just crushing Wilson. Um, the interception, Trey White, literally following. He was covering his. Corey said this yesterday, covering his guy while also reading like that while reading yeah. Wilson's eyes and the pressure they put on him before that with back to back sacks put Wilson in that position. So. I, don't, I, I think that, that was the most impressive performance I've seen the defense had. That's the number one offense. They're going to score. Yep. They're going to score. So I, the fact that they had that many big plays over and over, I mean, seven sacks they had. That was, abs- excuse me, five sacks. Seattle had seven. It was the most impressed I've been by the defense all year.
0: Yeah, three quick guys I kind of want to shout out here, right? Obviously, I think Trey White needed a game like that. He needed an, 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 an interception. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I think he needed a little confidence boost. He's been a little bit quiet. I mean, just hasn't had those game-breaking plays yet this season. And the guy who needed that game more was A.J. Klein. I mean, mean, everyone in Western New York has been (coughs) bashing him left and right, and he played great. I mean, didn't think about Milano once. He played very, very well. And then the third guy that I've – you know, certainly had my doubts about at the beginning of the year, but he's played very well over the past couple weeks. He's been more active. I feel like he's been more aggressive, and that's Jerry Hughes.
1: Hughes has been unreal since that Jets game. He's really come alive. What I I think another guy you're failing to mention here is Tremaine Edmonds. That game at least looked like the Tremaine Edmonds of old in terms of being aggressive, making those one-on-one tackles behind the line of scrimmage and, like, being a presence on the field. He was around the ball at all times. And I don't know if we ever followed up on it, but that Joe Marino from Lockdown Bills was saying what might have helped is they finally found a role for Klein there. It seems like blitzing him, and they did a horrible job picking up the blitzes. I don't know how great he is at getting off blocks, but they certainly just weren't – they weren't blocking him at all. Um, But they said that they kind of put Edmonds into that roaming Milano role while keeping Klein in for – And the Edmonds also, maybe that's something they could think about moving forward. He obviously, he should have been the defensive player of the week. But you, Allen played so good, you can't give the player of the week to both, you know, both of those to the same team. I totally understand that. But a a couple more things to hit on for our keys. Go ahead.
0: One of my big keys, you know, talking about Seattle, a dominant offense, but they're twenty-six in the NFL, third down conversion. But on Sunday, you know, we continued that trend They were 3 for 12 and the first one was a massive 3 and out
1: it changed the whole landscape of the game if they if we don't go down and score that quick they come back and score right away we don't know if we just keep it rolling with that confidence but yeah. forcing that offense to go 3 and out get the ball right back and go 14 nothing that gives you all the confidence in the world that listen i don't care if you're in NFL if you're in peewee whatever you know when you're the underdog the bills were the underdog that game and the seattle came in as one of the hottest teams in the NFL one of the most prolific offenses and to shut them down right away, help them later on. And our matchup to watch for, at least that I had, was trying to contain Russell Wilson. He only had five yards. I think Hughes, again, did a great job. He's done a much better job since those two losses. Everybody has, and everyone's talked about how that gap integrity from McDermott's defense has really come to play the la- into play the last few weeks. So that was great. Our, my bold take was both teams are going to score at least 30. That was an easy one. I don't even know if that was bold, but... Forty-four, thirty-four, and we both were wrong, that we both predicted the Bills to lose. I can't tell you how ecstatic I am to say that we were wrong, but some, just some more general takeaways, your boy John Brown came to play. And I think that's a huge part to this offense. Eight catches for 99 yards, that's screen. Now, people are talking about how Allen checked into that. If that's true, I get butterflies thinking about that. But what a perfect time to call the screen I'm going to say that I was – impressed. I know this sounds crazy having your quarterback sacked seven times, but with a, with your starting right guard playing center and two backup guards in, and Ryan Bates and Ike Bodker, I thought except that one stretch in the third quarter, I thought the offensive line played great. I couldn't believe the time they were getting to Allen, and I can't believe that when you get two players back like Jamal Adams and Carlos Dunlap, who I thought both had great games, and you still – Put up 44 points. I, I was very impressed with the offensive output. Again, you found a role for Klein. Uh, let's see what else they have here. Yeah, and I, I just thought, again, it, it's a game that they can now look at and say, well, we beat Seattle. We can beat this team. Like, if we, if we face Kansas City in the playoffs, we can look back and say, listen, if our offense could play like that, we can go toe-to-toe. With Patrick Mahomes. So it's the most impressive. People have been talking about it's the most impressive Bills game since when. And they've been comparing it last year to really the first breakout game of this Bills core, the Thanksgiving game versus Dallas. And I think this is way more impressive, at least in my opinion. To me, just to put Allen in
0: perspective, just, I mean, think about uh, two years ago. Think about, go back to a low point in Allen's you know, rookie season. Remember that Green Bay Green Bay game when we lose, I think it's week two or week three, 22 to nothing. Allen's stat line that day, 16 of 33 for 150 with two picks, sacked seven times. Rush five for 19. Think about how long ago that feels in the development. Dan, you talked, if he did check into a play like that, just how he's able to mentally process this. Obviously Bean and Co get a lot of Credit for putting people around him, but a lot of this is Allen thinking the game through and developing the right way.
1: Everyone talked about how high his ceiling was when he entered the draft, but the floor was so low that people were afraid of him. That floor continues to get higher and higher, and I have no idea how high this ceiling is if he can keep it up. And I know we're, you know, it's funny, we should go back and play the tape after like those losses or maybe even the Jets game. And I know we're buzzing right now off that, but that was. Unbelievable, unbelievable.
0: All right, Dan, let's talk about Sunday's matchup at Arizona. Some people are calling it the John Brown revenge game. I'm sitting here calling it the Tanner Vallejo revenge game. If you did not know, fun fact, he's got four tackles on the year, nine combined tackles. Arizona, nice to see our former six-round pick getting some burn
1: out west. We'll talk about another guy who it's a re- revenge game for. He's one of my keys later on. Arizona comes in 5-3 and three off a tough over, Excuse me, a tough loss to Miami. The two coming out game really last week. Him and Kyler going blow for blow. Some questionable coaching, which I think that's a huge advantage the Bills have coming in. I'm not a Kingsbury guy. I think Vance Joseph stinks. They have two great wins, an overtime win versus Seattle, who obviously we know how tough they are. And they beat San Francisco at San Francisco to start the year. They have a couple bad losses, though. Carolina, Detroit, who I think stinks. Um, so it'll be an interesting matchup. Bill, do you want to dive? Should we dive in? Are you got something first? Go ahead. I got one other fun
0: fact, and I apologize for it. This is a little bit out of place. But, Dan, there is one player, okay, who has played for both of these teams who ranks 30th in all-time NFL receptions.
1: It's not Quinn Early who we mentioned. Yeah, you'll
0: never get it. All right, let me, guess, 2000- let me guess, let me guess, let me guess. Oh, right, go ahead. I'll give you one hint. Yeah. In 2001 for Buffalo, he was targeted 105 times and had 80 catches. Larry Centers. Larry Centers, all-time leading fullback. I mean, but aren't those numbers unbelievable? The guy had over 800 catches in his career. Yeah. He, is he in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> he is not in the Hall of Fame, but I might start the uh, – I might start the petition. I like that. Let's go
1: over the last four matchups the Cardinals have had versus the Bills. Let's go all the way back to 2004, Willis McGahee's rookie year. We're in Buffalo. The Bills are two and excuse me, one and five coming in. Arizona's lost 16 straight road games. They had the ugliest road years I've ever seen in this highlight. I looked at too. Huge win, gust. Bledsoe throws for only 87 yards but hits molds on a red zone touchdown. They, it was the Willis day. 30 carries, over 100 yards, 2 touchdowns. Terrence McGee, a big 87-yard touchdown return. Bills improved to 2-5, which would start their stretch of winning 8-9 before losing to Pittsburgh to fail to make the playoffs. Let's go to 2008. People know it as the Trent Edwards game. Bills that come in 4-0. And Adrian Wilson crushes him. Lossman comes in. They lose the game. They end up, the, they end the season, excuse me, 7-9. People, I, and maybe I'm wrong, okay? People talk about how that really was like the end of Trent Edwards, like Bills had something special. Let me read you these stats. All right, they were 4-0. They beat Seattle 34-10 to start the year. 19 for 30, 215 yards and a touchdown. Nothing super impressive there. Then they beat Jacksonville. Some call it the James Hardy game. He had his only career touchdown, I believe. RIP. Late in the game, 4-10 left. But Trent Edwards, 20 for 25, 239 and a touchdown. Decent day, nothing great. They beat Oakland down 16-7, entering the fourth. They end up winning 39-24. Yeah, no, no, no. 24-23, excuse me. He was 24 for 39, 279 yards, a touchdown interception. Again, nothing great. Good numbers, nothing great. Then they go ahead. Big second half. They're down 14-6 at the half. Jabari Greer has a big 33-yard interception return. They beat St. Louis 31-14. He goes 15 for 25, 197 yards. Before he got hurt, he threw for 65.5%. After he got hurt, 65.5. The only thing that kind of decreased was he was throwing for 230 yards a game down to 192. Bottom line is he sucked all along. There's nothing that Adrian Wilson did to ruin the bill's fortunes that year he just stunk we just thought he was great because Lossman stunk even worse (laughs) but anyway that game excuse me so the Bills lose that game 41-17 then we go to 2012 I don't remember this game at all Arizona 4-1 coming in Buffalo 2-3 Buffalo's up 16-13 with three minutes left and for no reason at all they have Brad Smith throw Wildcat or Wildcat was that when the yeah. Wildcat bomb that Patrick Peterson intercepts in the end zone? Car- on, the pers- on the next drive, Kevin Cobb is trying to work them into field goal range to tie. Alex Carrington and Chris Kelsey combine to clobber Cobb, forcing him out of the game. John Skelton from TCU Fordham comes in, leads them to a game-tying 61-yard field goal with a minute left. I don't know what happens because I'm just watching a highlight, but with 45 seconds left, they have the ball back, and they get it to a 38-yard field goal, and Feely misses it. Do you remember this game at all? We had to be watching it together. It was middle college, you know, like yes, I'm sophomore year, right? Yes, October of sophomore year, yeah. I don't remember that game at all. Had to be a West Campus. And, yeah, it probably was, actually. <laughs> then Arizona gets the ball to start overtime. So like more misfortune for the Bills. Jerry's Bird comes up with a second interception of the day, brings it inside the Arizona 10, Lindell with the game-winning kick. I have zero recollection of that game. I also have zero recollection of this game. It was only four years ago. And I do, and I remember watching it with you. I was with you in the stadium?
0: Yes. I don't remember this at all. I was so negative.
1: Bill, Well, Bills end up winning 33-18 in, uh, that's what I was going to say, it's September of 2016, so I we definitely had seasons together then. I have zero recollection. It's Rex's last year. They're zero to two entering the game. They just got thumped by actually Baltimore. That gross early game. Then they got that. Oh, this must have been. So they just fired Greg Roman because they lost that high scoring game to the Jets, and yep. they fired Greg Roman. They go up thirty to seven. They ran over two hundred yards with McCoy over one hundred and ten. They had five takeaways. Aaron Williams fifty three yard fumble return. Gilmore with two interceptions, Graham and Corey White with an interception and eight tackles. Dude, I have I don't remember that game at all. I remember walking out of the stadium just being like a little baby like,
0: "We still stink. Yeah. This isn't good. Well, we you, still stink."
1: First, well, you were right. <laughs> you were right. What a different feeling it is going into this week's game, Bill. I am going to start. Oh, well, you are going to start. I'm going to
0: start with I mean, here, just a little lesson for any NFL fan, if you're a Bills fan, if you're going to be watching this game, He's at the tail end, okay? But appreciate the greatness and just watch Larry Fitzgerald, okay? And I'm going to tell you why. Dan just went over the last 5 meetings and you only play a cross-conference team once every 4 years. Larry Fitzgerald was in every single game that Dan just mentioned. Larry Fitzgerald was drafted in 2003 or 2004 and has played in the 04, 08, 12, 16 and now the 2020 game.
1: Yeah, that is that's actually a great point. A great point. And I'll start with my first key. Handle the Arizona blitz. Again, it was that short stretch. And you got Mitch Morse coming back, which could be huge if he's able to play. He's out of concussion protocol. Cody Ford's back practicing. I'm getting a little I'm starting to get a little I'm buzzing again, thinking about all these guys coming back from injury. But you know I've always been like backer guy so if he's in there that's fine. How funny was it when uh who had the
0: when John Brown had the the,
1: the Ryan ball, Bates was right behind him and baby. He just
0: gave him like a big like yeah. like a little yeah. left hand jab. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. They I thought their screen game was great the other day in terms of offensive line and how about Feliciano on that Josh Allen touchdown run getting out there and taking out the legs of one of those defenders. But anyway, handle the Arizona blitz. Seattle had seven sacks um and their hurry, they had much more hurries against that offensive line. Arizona's blitzed fourth most in the NFL. They have 136. That's 40% of their snaps. But they're only 16th in pressure, so it doesn't seem like they're having a a ton of success getting to the quarterback. And pressure's obviously combine hurry, sacks, and knockdowns, so that needs to continue and use this to set up the screens and find one-on-one matchups. I think that we have a huge advantage with the receivers. I think that the one guy we got to watch out for, because Chandler Jones is out, and actually watch over Jordan Phillips. So, again, I'm going to get to that later. Watch out for Hassan Reddick. This is a guy that I really wanted the Bills to draft. He's a high draft pick, right? Temple, right? And he's a guy they didn't use very well. That's why people are saying they didn't want him to draft Isaiah Simmons this year because they ruined Hassan Reddick. But he's having a pretty good game. Five sacks, eight quarterback hits so far. Uh, So watch out for the Blitz. You want one of my keys? I I would love one of your keys. All
0: right, one of my keys. Let's scroll down to what I got here. Okay. Yeah, I think number one is you got to stop kyler on the ground this is you want to you want to talking about you know a low-key elite rushing attack in the nfl it's arizona and you wouldn't think so by thinking about how they're running the football but the guy who's running the football the most efficiently is kyler Murray. He's averaging over seven yards a carry okay he's ran for over 65 yards and a touchdown in each of his last three games and dan the most I think the most impressive thing to me, and I've always said this about Murray, he's just slippery. I mean, when you're watching his feet run, it's like you're watching fast forward. Yep. He's taken five sacks since week three. Okay. I mean, he's very, very hard to get on the ground. So you're going to have to contain him. You, you don't want to get beat, especially Make when it comes to third throw down. Yep. You know,
1: that that's where I'm most worried about Murray. Make him beat you with the arm. I think that's a great key. My next key and it's tough. I'm, I've, I've been going back and forth on this. You have to think that Vance Joseph is saying, well, I'm going to tell you one thing. We're not going to get beat like that. So my key is to come out as aggressive as you did last week, but don't force it. Take advantage of what Arizona is giving you. Seattle just happened to give them deep balls and cover man, which is hilarious. If you look at anything else before that New England game, why P. Carroll thought that was the plan, I don't know. If you need to establish the run, go ahead and run it. But if you can do what you did last week, and I'm not even talking about the production. I'm just talking about how you're drawing up these plays and keep it in Allen's arms. He's clearly the focal point of this team and this offense right now. Don't feel like you have to go back to the run just to make Zach Moss and Devin Singletary happy. But if that's the case, then you better establish the run if that's what they give you. And if it's a grinded is. But there's ways to find weaknesses in this defense, and I think it's just being aggressive but not forcing it. So towing that line. Yeah, kind of building off your point, one of my keys, and I sound like an old
0: man saying this, but Allen, the one thing that if I could have back anything from a Seattle game, again, I'm just I'm picking hairs here or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Yep. He needs to throw the ball away. He had, he took seven sacks. I mean, you think about Murray taking five sacks since week three. He took seven against Seattle. Okay, and I, there's speculation that, you know, he was certainly not 100% after that Vegas game, I, he was wearing something around that shoulder. Um, it looks certainly healthy against Seattle, but again, one shot away from not being 100. percent. And the the upside, or you know, really the downside, is not that big if he throws the ball away. Um, so he's got to just he's got to chuck that thing. How about we go to your matchup, Bill? Yeah, my matchup, and it kind of it kind of fires in with the bold take. Um, Listen, we have, and I think if you're Arizona right now, if you're an Arizona fan, you are very, very nervous. All right, your two top corners are over 30 years old. We have receivers that can do everything. Uh, Diggs, Beasley, Brown against some old cornerbacks, Dan. That that's my matchup, and I'm just going to kind of string that into my bold take. And yes, Allen has hit the deep ball with more consistency this year, but there isn't many deep touchdowns, and I think that's what happens
1: this week. We get a deep one. That's your bold take. Love it. I think what's frustrating when the off- when the pass off passing offense is not clicking and it doesn't have to hum like it did last week but just not clicking like it really wasn't against New England but obviously the weather impacts that or even going back to like Tennessee but it, it just seems impossible to me and maybe John Brown's health plays a lot to do with it, But it seems impossible to me that a team can stop all three of those guys. If you're going to take digs away, then you're going to have to do that with two people. You're going to have to have a guy on him and over the top. That's fine. Same thing with Brown. That should leave Beasley wide open. If you want to take the slot away, fine. But one of those outside guys are going to be free. There's three receivers. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to exploit one of those matchups, especially, like you said, an aging um, an aging cornerbacks, good safety duo, especially Buda Baker, the highest-paid safety in the NFL right now, I think, who did not practice today, who may not play, which would be another wow. added bonus. that actually would be huge. My bold take, coming off your bold take, is something that we've seen in the past when he's on the Bills. I think Jordan Phillips takes a huge 15-yard penalty. Who is also potentially not going to play. Really? Yeah, he hasn't practiced. How about Hannah does just a tad of research? So that'd be, that'd be another huge one. And listening to those Arizona guys, he's playing exactly like... He did with the Bills. A little inconsistent, but he'll make that big play out of nowhere. But we know Jordan Phillips. He's pumping up the crowd one play, and he's stomping in the foot of a Miami uh, quarterback's leg the next play. Okay, he's he's always there for a cheap shot, especially against teams that he think might have wronged him. I bet he's pissed that the Bills didn't offer the same amount of money that the Cardinals did. They probably said, go ahead and walk. You're just a space filler for Ed Oliver anyway. And you can argue that it would have been nice having him back anyway, but I think it's fine that we let him go. I think he takes a big penalty that keeps a drive alive that the Bills score a touchdown on. What is your score prediction, Mr. Buckets? Yeah, that's gonna kind of my fourth bonus key here is
0: we gotta limit our penalties because Arizona's the second most penalized team on defense. They let Miami stay in that game. They really did they shot themselves in the foot and extended Miami drives. So if we limit our own penalties, which we did a better job of at against Seattle, we should be fine. I think that's going to tie into my score. I think they're going to Dan. Here, let me let me say one other thing. We're very fortunate to be catching this Arizona team here in 2020 in the front end of the schedule. Because I agree. I mean, think about the guys that they're building around Kyler Murray, Buddha Baker, Isaiah Simmons, who. Dan has not played more than 50% of the snaps yet this year. He played 52% of the snaps last week. He's creeping that was up, the yep. first time, but he's still making mistakes. We're catching him very early in his career, which could be promising. You mm-hmm. don't know. Dan, this is a team that I think is going to, is on the up and up. I mean, I would never want to play him next year or the year after. So one other bold take before I get to my score here is the Bills and the Cardinals will meet in the Super Bowl in the next four years. What? <laughs> That is bull. but we'll have it and on record. my score, because, you know, once it's Super Bowl week and you got nothing to talk about for two weeks, they're going to be going back to prior matchups. And the matchup that you're going to see is in 2020 when they squared off, the Bills won by a score of 36-31.
1: Okay, so I had a score very similar to that to start, and I really wanted to give the Bills 40 points, but I thought between the fact that Vance Joseph has to be dialing something up to limit the deep balls and explosive plays. It might be more of a grinded-out win and whatnot. But I thought, let me do a little research anyway. When was the last time the Bills did score back-to-back 40-point games on offense? I had so much fun looking this up. The reason I think it's going to be an offensive battle is because both teams come in as the ninth most efficient offense, according to Football Outsiders. All right? And I think it's going to be a game where we're going to need turnovers to win because I don't think we're going to be able to stop Murray fully. I don't think they're going to be able to stop Allen. So I did some more research. The last time they scored 35 or more points after a 40-point game, 2011. They beat Kansas City 41-7 to open the season. Oakland Week 2, 38-35. I believe that's the game that Whitner chased that guy down. Mm-hmm. They won on the field goal. Or, no, that, is, that, or is that the – that's not the Screaming fits game, is it? That's the Screaming fits game that we were at. We yes. had good seats for that one. Yes, we did. And then they beat New England, obviously one of the most memorable games of recent years with Drayton Florence. The pick six to take the lead. Fred Jackson, huge run, game-winning field goal. So they start the season 3-0. That, by the way, I would love to do a stretch. That has to be the highest three-game stretch for offense in team history, but whatever. Then I did some more research. And while I was doing the research, I found some more fun facts. In 1998, on the way to a wild card, we beat Oakland 44-21 and New Orleans 45-32. But... We lost to the Jets 17-10 in between, so that did not count. In 2008, we beat Kansas City 54-31 to improve to 6-5, and five, and then we lost the next two games, both at home, scoring three points a game. Do you remember that San Francisco game, dude, seven, yeah. seven, or no, 10-3? It was po- freezing rain. Yeah. It was awful. So we went from 54 points to six total the next two games. Another fun fact, <laughs> dude, 1992. Hey, you know what? I got to interject. Hey, all you
0: Kenton taxpayers, listen to this public employee. He's got a lot of time on his no, hands. No, we had Veterans
1: Day. I should be apologizing to all the veterans <laughs> I wasn't honoring looking up all this stuff. Started off 1992, 4-0. We outscored opponents 153-45, to and then we lost the next two games 37-10, to 20-3. It's remarkable how the NFL is such a week-to-week league. Anyway, I did find the last time we scored 40 points. 1990 on their way to the first Super Bowl. Weeks 9 and 10, they beat Cleveland 42 nothing, And who would they beat? 45-14, the Phoenix Cardinals to improve to 8-1. and So what Let's I'm go. picking is the Bills are going to score 40 points on their way to an eighth win of the season, very similar to 1990. Who knows? Could be the start of a run for a Super Bowl. And the Bills are going to win... Love it. Like a 10-point victory like the last week. Giving them the AFC East lead and the third seed in the AFC, which is very important, heading into the bye week. I think we did a great job there, Bill. Dan, at the beginning of the show, I said this could be a top 10 episode. I'm changing it to top six. Wow, top six. That's pretty impressive. So let's do this. We had our phone with the Bills. Now let's send it over to a very good guest. We'll send it over to Ian Harditz to talk some fantasy football with you, maybe some guys to pick up if your trade deadline's coming up. Must listen. Here we go. This interview
0: is brought to you by Arista Networks. Arista Networks is an industry leader in campus, Wi-Fi, data center, and cloud computing. Learn more about Arista at arista.com.
1: Week 10 of the NFL season looming. We wanted to touch base with a fantasy football guru to get you ready for the final stretch of your fantasy season. So we welcome on Ian Harditz of Pro Football Focus. He is the host of the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast, and you can also hear him on Fantasy Sports Radio on Sirius XM. Ian, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: What's going on, dudes? Happy Week 10, everybody. I know it's been a grind, but we aren't done yet. We still got... Several important matchups on the horizon. Championship Sunday, right around the corner. Let's get after it, fellas. Great day to be great.
1: Ian, we are huge Bills fans, born and raised, so let's start there. How impressive has Josh Allen been to you this year?
2: He's been fantastic. And look, I realize that PFF has been one of these companies that hasn't always said the nicest things about Josh Allen in terms of his ability to be a real life awesome quarterback. And I do think that verdict remains out there, you know, just to some extent. I mean, I know he's had some awesome games, but we have still seen a little bit of a floor and ceiling from him just in terms of real life production. But in fantasy land, he has always been anyone's idea of an elite fantasy quarterback. I mean, you go back to his rookie year, comes back from injury. He worked as the overall fantasy QB one the final month of that season. In twenty nineteen he was the overall QB six. And this year he's the overall QB four after nine weeks. So you know, I've had my QB three then in, in uh, this spot against the Cardinals, but I think just moving forward, the only guys you'd really want on the squad ahead of him, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Kyler Murray, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, but I think that's it, man. We've actually reached the point where I think Josh Allen is superior quarterback than even Lamar Jackson in fantasy land the rest of the way. So a situation where only Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, and Russell Wilson also have five games with at least 300 plus passing yards. Only Cam Newton has more rushing touchdowns inside the five yard line. So you know, Bills have this awesome mix with. John- Josh Allen, where he just has arguably the most fantasy-friendly workload among all QBs. He's out there passing more than just about anybody. When they get inside the red zone, nobody has a better nose for finding the promised land than Josh Allen when they get inside the five-yard line. So truly, 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 anyone's idea of a fantastic fantasy QB, and I think uh, he has he's on his way. Getting there as a real-life option as well.
1: And you mentioned the real-life option. I think one of the main reasons he's taken a big step in that regard is the acquisition of Stefan Diggs. In your opinion, has his production been a surprise? He's first in targets, receptions, yards—yards, yards, excuse me. He's been a productive receiver his whole career, but the consistency this year—is—is is it that that's impressed you the most?
2: It's been great to see them really treat him as you know the undisputed number one alpha wide receiver that I think he's always been. It's just been a matter of trying to get him those targets. I mean, with the Vikings, you know, credit to Adam Thielen for also being a great receiver, and they just didn't quite have the need to try to feed both these guys the sort of target share that he is now finally getting in Buffalo so you know and then he look at last year with the Vikings he only had 94 targets on the entire season and he did lead the league in deep ball you know yards so he was being used in a fancy friendly way but now at Buffalo again we're seeing him used underneath intermediate deep it truly is not a thing that Stephon Diggs can't do at a high level at the wide receiver position and it's been fantastic to see he's a guy that I was a little bit later getting onto to just because I thought hey you know Smokey Brown's there Cole Beasley you know kind of a quiet passing game and we just don't exactly know what's to come out of Josh Allen. But you talk about bringing in just the perfect guy to help kind of fix a flaw in your quarterback's game, and that was Stephon Diggs. Because last year, I mean, Josh Allen, you know, you look at all the advanced stats of how he did, you know, throwing the ball at least 20 yards downfield, and he was just a below-average quarterback in pretty much everything except the frequency with which he did so. I kind of compared it to, uh, you know, Russell Westbrook shooting the three. Like, it's something that he should not be doing uh, uh, percentage-wise, but still loves to do it anyway. But we have seen Josh Allen take a massive step forward this year with his ability to throw downfield, and adding Stefan Diggs has been the main reason for that. So, look, man, as a rookie, Josh Allen did not have good passing metrics in anything. They add Smokey Brown. They add Cole Beezer. They give him some linemen. He improves. They get Stephon Diggs. He improves. It's okay for players to improve as time goes on, particularly when you increase them. Uh, you know, credit to the Bills for continuing to give Josh Allen, you know, pretty much the best possible environment you can imagine for him to continue to improve and get better.
0: Absolutely, Ian. Uh, Buckets here. Let's talk about that environment. Those secondary options from a fantasy standpoint. To me, as good as this offense has been, there's only two must-start guys, and Allen and Diggs, and Singletary's been a fantasy disappointment. Moss has been injured, um, you know, much at the beginning of the year. You know, where do you stand on some of these guys? Is like, I don't know. I guess, I guess my question for you is. You know, where do you stand on guys like John Brown and Cole Beasley? Like, are you a guy who would like to start John Brown every week he's healthy?
2: He, he looked healthier last week, I thought, than he'd actually been in months. I know he's been playing, uh, you know, pretty much every game. I think he missed one at some point. But he's just been, one of these guys that you even go back to his days with the Cardinals. Like, when he's been playing banged up, he's quite a caliber deep threat but we saw that last week and i think uh, accordingly he had 11 targets i mean previously he hadn't had more than six targets since week one so i really do think that increased workload is a bit of a sign that he is you know a little bit closer to 100 percent. now we got you know the hashtag revenge game going up against the cardinals yep. so we got we got we got storyline narrative going in his way we got the usage we got the health uh yeah i think john brown is you know certainly a viable upside wide receiver three So much of the passing game continues to flow through Stefan Diggs. It's hard to feel too good about anyone else, I would say about the complimentary guys, John Brown deserves to be the number two guy talked about with the backfield man, it's just tough because all those things I said about Josh Allen being a fantasy friendly quarterback, he is for himself, but in terms of the backfield, man, you really can't find uh, someone you probably least want to be the quarterback of your fantasy football teams, running backs because Josh Allen, he does not like to check down, even a little bit. He has only checked down eight of 355 dropbacks this year. That's 2.2% bottom five mark in the entire league. And, you know, like I said before, only Cam Newton has scored more rushing touchdowns inside the five-yard line. So, Devin Singletary, you know, it's a 50-50 backfield. And Devin Singletary is a pass-down back in offense that doesn't make a habit of throwing their running backs. And Zach Moss is a quote-unquote goal-line back of an offense where the quarterback scores most of the goal-line touchdowns. So situation where maybe on another team would be fine. I mean, look, there's only so many backfields in the league where one single guy dominates, and so we can live with two RB backfields like this normally. But Josh Allen just kind of takes away from usually the fantasy friendly opportunities that we would expect Singletary and Moss to get with these rules on a different team.
0: As the bye weeks approach and COVID lists grow, there's a lot of, to me, low end two, three, flex rod receivers that I would kind of love to hear your opinion about if you're okay with that. Can I run down five receivers and just like your let's, general thoughts about do them? It. Yeah, Because these five to me kind of are in the same category, so I'm wondering what you think. How about Jarvis Landry?
2: Yeah, Jarvis, man. I see uh, on the newest edition of the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast with uh, with my guy Dwayne McFarland, He was uh, hyping up Jarvis I think it makes a lot of sense that he could potentially be, you know, this wide receiver two, top 24, top 25 option moving forward. I mean, the big talk after the Beckham injury was Richard Higgins. And yeah, I think Higgins is a fine upside wide receiver three, but don't get it twisted. You know, it was OBJ one Landry two last year. It was one a one B. I mean, Landry has been there. And as much as Baker might like throwing the ball at Higgins, I mean, his, I think Landry has been on another level, level particularly in terms of volume. But you know, with the Browns, I think they played well to start. I was a little bit skeptical of how they could do. Coming out of this bye, particularly you know Chubb and Hunt, because it's just a, you know they're great at front running. But when we see teams like the Steelers, Ravens, just kind of be able to get up a little bit and they force the Browns to play uncomfortable. They're obviously not you know quite as good as some of other teams that trying to play comeback mode and get back in these games. But you look at their schedule coming up, man: Texans, Eagles, Jaguars, Titans, Ravens, Giants, and Jets. Up until championship Sunday there in week sixteen. So situation where, you know, Jarvis, yeah, I think he's gonna see an increased volume and yeah, I think he has a matchups to make some real noise with it.
0: Mike Williams.
2: Mike Williams is so good. I also think Mike Williams might be the most overqualified wide receiver two in the entire league. And the way Justin Herbert just keeps on keeping on. That stone for at least 300 yards and/or three touchdowns in every single start this season. And guess what? When you're a wide receiver with a quarterback, you know putting up that kind of productivity, you're going to be in line to, you know for some big games yourself. So look, it's still Keenan Allen's offense, but you know we still haven't seen Hunter Henry do much of anything. Austin Eckler is obviously still sidelined. So the concern with Mike going in this year was pretty much that he's a crowded offense, and he could even be the number four option any given week. We didn't know where we we're getting out of Herbert or Tyrod Taylor or what was going on. Now we know Herbert's a stud and we know he's the undisputed number two pass game option in his offense. Yeah, love Mike Williams moving forward. It. Again, it's a situation where I, I understand if we're not gonna be able to consistently rank him inside the top twenty four because of you know, just weekly balling concerns, but you know, anyone's idea of an upside wide receiver three and when he's close to guys in rankings, I'm probably gonna be picking Mike most of the time.
0: I'm still sketched out to start Curtis Samuel. Am I wrong?
2: No, nah, I, I think you're fair. And, look, I love Curtis. I'm a Columbus, Ohio native. You know, I've watched every single game his students play going back to his college career. And, you know, I think he has gone the raw end of the deal sometime. I mean, last year this dude should have had freaking 15 touchdowns if Kyle Allen was, you know, a real-life NFL quarterback. But, alas, here we are. And, but you just look at the game last week and, you know, hey, he played great. all nine of his targets. But coincided with a game where Teddy Bridgewater threw a season-high, I believe, 49 Pass attempts. We saw DJ Moore only have two targets. Like, it, that, that's not going to stay out this whole year. This, uh, unlike the Chargers, this remains a very crowded offense. So Curtis, Robbie, DJ, now McCaffrey's back, and they also want to keep Mike Davis involved. Like, there's only, there's only so many mouths that Teddy Bridgewater is capable of feeding. It helps that Curtis Samuel is, you know, getting a couple of rush attempts per game for sure. I think there's worse guys to, you know, throw out there on the flex, have on the bench. But in terms of expecting Curtis to, you know, consistently put up this sort of five two or two production, uh, I'm selling that idea.
0: Marvin Jones.
2: Yeah, Marvin. I was more on him last week. The thing with the Lions this year, like what made them so good last year was uh, the fact that. Daryl Bavel came from um, Seattle, really got a new gunslinger mentality in Matthew Stafford's head, which, I mean, as he should, this dude has one of the strongest arms in the entire league, and it's a shame that he spent so many years, you know, just kind of digging and dug at the Golden Tate and Theo Riddick freaking 20 times per game. But now the problem is that Kenny Galladay is sidelined. And this season, the only three games that Stafford has had an average target depth under 10 yards have been the three games that Galladay has been sidelined. I mean, the Vikings game last week was easily... The worst Stafford has looked at all season, and I just don't know if this offense can kind of continue to be this high-end unit without Galladay in the fold. Because I mean, usually we think the wide receiver two, and we lose the wide receiver able to kind of just improve based on pure opportunity. But with the way this offense is moving and they staying committed to, you know, Karen Johnson, Adrian freaking Peterson instead of, you know, freeing DeAndre Swift. I just don't really trust the offense right now. Stafford is not playing as best without Galladay. You know, Jones, he's not the worst guy you can throw out there as a wide receiver three, but I think we have you know, just more talented players at this point in their respective careers. Uh, with uh, you know even close to similar volume concerns and better offenses. So I, I would take uh you know definitely twenty thirty guys ahead of Marvin Jones, uh, more weeks than not here moving forward.
0: My last one and I'm surprised he, I'm a news uh, we'll talk about it after, but I was surprised he's a little bit low on this on this uh week ten ranking going up against the potentially, you know, high scoring Bills uh Arizona game Christian Kirk.
2: Yeah, Kirk's someone I've been a little bit late to the party with and to his credit he has been playing some great football lately I mean I wasn't quite buying the you know two touchdown streak just because it came against the Cowboys and the Seahawks I mean arguably the two teams that you would want to play most uh, if you're a wide receiver but to see them come out of the bye get eight targets again catch five of them for 123 yards in the score I mean it's like they've they've almost been letting Kirk and Isabella like simultaneously audition for that field stretcher role and it sure looks like Kirk is winning so he's a guy that you know didn't exactly just put on the complete after Burner's at the combine or anything. We don't necessarily think of him as just the fastest, you know, wide receiver on the Cardinals or anything. But, man, you see this dude put on a pair of shoulder pads and run downfield, and all of a sudden it's like, who can stay in front of this guy? So, he's been playing great. We've been waiting for someone else other than DeAndre Hopkins to emerge in this passing game. And over the past few weeks, like, look, Hopkins is going to be fine, but we have seen Kyler be more willing to spread things around. So, wide receiver two, I don't think so, only because at Hopkins I, I see the target share – generally rising back up, but I think Kirk is definitely the next most uh, valuable guy in that Cardinals passing game. I'm fine treating him as, you know, more of an upside wide receiver three, as opposed to the boomer bust guy I think he was for the most part of the earlier seasons.
1: Well, we're hoping that he gets shut out this week, but... (laughs) Our final few rapid-fire questions. I want to ask about if we are in a dynasty league, and let's talk about rookies for a second. Who's been your most impressive rookie overall? And then give our listeners an under-the-radar rookie that we need to make sure we have going into next year.
2: Yeah, I would say uh, Justin Jefferson, you know, in a wide receiver class, whereas, you know, being heralded as maybe the best, group of wide receivers we've ever seen. I just think Justin Jefferson has more, more or less stood out as the top dog uh, in that group. I know Chase Claypool's had some huge games. A lot of these guys, I'm not, I'm not giving up on Henry Ruggs or any of these dudes. Jalen Rager's been hurt. There's still obviously talent everywhere, but Justin Jefferson has truly been a top five receiver in the league in terms of yards per route run. You just see him winning all over the field. It's a, it's, it's a good point that I think, you know, in Dynasty sometimes, and I made this mistake. I won't call it a mistake, but I feel like we're so used to sometimes in season-long drafts loading up on you know the running backs early. And hey, man, if you can find one of these wide receivers, Justin Jefferson, AJ Brown, that you are super sure about just being the next kind of stud at the position, uh, you know, might have to take a longer look at maybe using that a uh, high-end first-round pick on the wide receiver versus the running back. Because as we see with these running backs, man, it's really fun until it's not, and that drop-off does come uh, quite a bit quicker than it does the your position uh someone what was the second question someone that could improve here moving forward
1: yeah so some kind of like an under the radar rookie or maybe second year guy that we need to make sure we have in our rosters to hold on to for next year
2: yeah, I think J.K. Dobbins is probably that guy. And we need the Ravens to part ways with Mark Ingram after yeah, this year. They have I'm an sure. out in his contract. It would make sense. You know, it doesn't look like Gus Edwards is going anywhere, but at a minimum, we have seen over these past two weeks without Mark Ingram there that Dobbins is the guy playing over 50% of the offensive snaps. He's getting just as many carries, if not more than Edwards, and he has been the primary pass down back. So, you know, Lamar Jackson there, I know it's been a little bit of an up and down offense, but, you know, we don't have to go back one year to find Mark Ingram pretty much waltzing his way into 15 touchdowns on the ground so you know rb1 in baltimore is still going to be a fantasy friendly role in the uh, you know with lamar jackson running so much you think that might take away from it but on the other hand him running so much helps open up those lanes improve the efficiency for his backs, and just being in this sort of run first offense in general there's still more than enough work to go around you know like i was saying earlier we can live with two running back committees when it gets to three or four mm-hmm. that we get problems and that's really all we're seeing with the ravens this year so i think 2021 we see jk dobbins rb1 season
1: yeah i'm going to actually go off script a little bit you talk about these running backs the committee. What should we do with Jonathan Taylor down the stretch? Another team that uses three running backs, and I can't ever get a read. And I know he's a little banged up with an ankle now. What's your recommendation for Jonathan Taylor owners?
2: Yeah, that's a mess, man. I was thinking that you know you look before they by and Jordan Wilkins he had a calf injury, and then he didn't. He was only playing a couple snaps a game, and it seemed natural for them to really see Taylor post by. That's not what happened. We just see Jordan Wilkins continuing to stay involved. It's, It's just been so weird though, man. You look at these games really since week one, and almost every single week the Colts are either winning by multiple scores or they're falling behind multiple scores in the first half. And if, you know, either turning into Naeem Hines comeback mode or Jordan Wilkins, you know, milk the clock up multiple scores in the fourth quarter mode. So I do think that if we just get a game where the Colts are kind of, you know, within seven points, up or down the whole time, we will see Jonathan Taylor lead the way in touches. But the problem is that Jordan Wilkins, not going anywhere like we hope we're hoping for he, that he would. I would just say, you know, don't confuse Jonathan Taylor's like not bursting out with an, uh, the idea that like Wilkins is all of a sudden becoming this fantasy viable back. They're both just eating into each other. It's hard to, it's hard to you know, trust either guy at this moment. And then we got Naeem Hines there the whole time taking away all the pass down work. So, yeah, it's unfortunate the way it's worked out with Jonathan Taylor. You really can't trust him as an RB2 at this point. You're not really, I mean, unless you can get something really good for him, you're probably not going to sell him because his value is at an all-time low. Uh, You you would certainly hope that they have better things planned for him ahead. Uh, I mean, and look – it's not like he's been playing fantastic football and they have just been leaving the guy on the bench. He needs to play better as well. But uh, I do think it's a little bit early to completely give up on the guy. I mean, Frank Reich said they still have plenty of confidence in him and all that. So, look, I don't think he's on the verge of just being benched and overtaken by Jordan Wilkins or anything. But, yeah, those are, you know, top five, top six pipe teams we had when Marlon Mack went down are pretty much over at least for 2020.
1: All right, Ian, when it comes to fantasy disappointments to this, to this point of the season – what, who should we just give up on and cut ties And who should we hold out hope for For me, I finally cut ties with Kenyon Drake There's a reason I suck at fantasy football It's because I didn't just drink the Kool-Aid in this, on this guy I chugged the Kool-Aid And he was awful Except that one week uh, And he actually was on my bench that week, classic But So who are some fantasy disappointments That we should just cut ties with And then some that we still might have hope for
2: Drake's rough, man. I mean, he got the role that we all wanted. I mean, if if someone would have said, hey, yeah, Kenan Drake's going to get 15 to 20 carries with a a couple targets. I mean, per game, do you still want to draft him as a top 10, 12 RB? And I think we'd all be okay with that. The problem is Kyler Murray's on pace to score freaking 16 rushing touchdowns. So he's not leaving anything on the uh, – he's not leaving any meat on the bone for these running backs, and that's what we saw uh, from Chase Edmonds last week as well. But uh, either either way, yeah, I think, uh, you know – T.Y. Hilton someone I've been saying over the past few weeks you can cut. I know the injuries probably made that a little bit easier. And, yeah, man, it's just injuries, COVID, everything impacting these guys. It's been tough to get a huge uh, read on it. I would say just take a long look at this, uh, you know um, – Josh Jacobs' situation with the Raiders, obviously you're not cutting him, but I think it's a potential sell-high situation. They're getting Devontae Booker more and more involved on the ground, and they're not giving Jacobs any sort of uh, reps in the hurry-up uh, situation. It's kind of like James Robinson with the Jaguars, where Robinson isn't their uh, pass-down back, but they have made an effort, at least earlier in the year, to really get him more involved in the passing with a couple of targets. The Raiders were doing that with Josh Jacobs, but we haven't seen them continue to do that since their bye. And it- Last week, Jacobs had 14 carries. Devontae Booker had eight. Devontae Booker was a freaking scat back the last two years. I have no idea why he's getting a legit run over Jacobs at certain points, like early in these games. But that's the reality we're in right now. You know, we saw Jacobs dip back down to a 56% snap rate when he'd been much closer to that 70, 80% mark earlier in the year. So he's fine. He's like sixth or seventh in the league in touches. I mean, again, he's not someone that you want to give up on by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I just still think people are probably treating him as more of a top five, top six option, or at least think he has that in his range of outcomes. And if you can get someone to believe that, I think you could potentially get a nice return because I just don't quite see this, uh, you know, mini committee going anywhere.
0: Ian, I've been to Columbus, Ohio twice in the past 25 months, and I love that place. And you've been given this great analysis of all these, you know, different fantasy players. There's one, I go to one place when I go to Columbus now, I want your analysis as a local on the short North Pine House.
2: Oh, Pine House is a good time. Yeah. It's a pretty trendy spot. I don't care. It's a little too, usually a little too crowded for me, but always a good time to, you know, get a pine, watch the game. Unfortunately, haven't had uh, too many chances to do that with everything closing down by 10 p.m. these days. But yeah, the, uh, we always got to love the Columbus life. As, as we like to say, it's, our, our two main mottoes are it's a nice, affordable place to live, and we are better than Detroit. So we proudly uh, hang our hat on those. <laughs>
0: That's how we feel about a couple of cities as well. That's why I love Columbus. Very similar to Buffalo in a lot of ways. Um, I will say this at the very end. I I just subscribed to PFF. I've been, a, you know, sometimes I just go to. I hate going to like ES. You know, here's one thing I hate about fantasy football. The one thing I back in the day they used to everyone used to bring their own cheat sheets to the draft, so there was different <laughs> rankings and everything was was way different and now it's just like people just go by the same board cuz you do it online it's on ESPN and or Yahoo or wherever you do your draft and now every you know a lot of people go to like place where it's where rankings are free and things like that I highly recommend I just made the switch I've been looking at Pro Football Focus and these rankings are fantastic it goes a little bit more in depth it's a little bit more analytical so I want to I want to first of all thank you Ian and just give you a little plug that I think I think this PFF might give me a little boost as we go down the stretch in fantasy football this year.
2: That yeah, man, yeah. You know, honestly, I just, uh, I've been with PFF now since uh, July, and just the amount of information we have behind the scenes is absolutely incredible. So, you know, I'm going to be out there on Twitter trying to give my takes and do this. But ultimately, my job is, you know, to just try to convey all this information in, you know, a good, understandable way. So that's why, you know, we got five podcasts out every week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, on the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. You can also check out my QB ranks, RB backfield breakdown, wide receiver cornerback matchups, and mismatch manifesto out, which I have between uh, every Tuesday and Thursday every week. So you know what? Like We are ultimately in the information providing business, and I just want to try to make anyone that is following along with PFF the smartest fantasy football player and just real-life fantasy or just real-life football fan that they can be.
1: As you said, Ian, I would say Bill's fans are not totally sold on PFF, but you certainly we, we like your <laughs> stuff, so you certainly found some new fans, and we really appreciate you taking time for us today.
2: Thanks, dudes. Best of luck in week 10.
1: All righty then. Thank you, Ian Hart. It's a lot of good info there. Hopefully you're able to put in some last-second waiver claims by the time you listen to this or some trade proposals. Let's wrap it up, Bill. Let's start with our reviewing, excuse me, our last week's Fantasy Fling of the Week. And, Bill, who's our sponsor for the Fantasy Fling? You can put it on the board!
0: Yes! And that's Buffalo Boutique Boards, charcuterie, cheese, you name it. It looks beautiful. It's delivered fresh. It's unbelievable stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Cuomo's trying to max out these parties at 10, so you call Amanda up at Buffalo Boutique Board. she making make you a nice little cute one that
1: a few people can put down. Perfect. Let's talk about our fantasy flings from last week. I had Josh Allen. Kaboom! Nailed that one. 415 yards, four total touchdowns, 43 points.
0: Yeah, I had Beasley, and I don't think he had a huge game. He's, more, he's a better football player than fantasy player. Um, but, Dan, moving into this week, I got another Bills receiver, and I talked it's Tanner Vallejo revenge time, but it's really John Brown revenge time. And I talked about two old corners, all right, in, in Arizona, and I think John Brown uses his speed. That air is nice and thin out there. Look for a huge, Josh. It's going to be one of those passes that, like like those Wilson passes that kind of float in the air for a long time. It's going to be one of those that just, like, holy smokes, how How far did he just throw the ball, and that's how far that touchdown is going to be. And right there, that's going to get you your fantasy flank points that you need.
1: I like that pick. I think him being healthy is huge, not only for the Bills, but also for fantasy. I completely agree. But I'm going to go with rookie running back Antonio Gibson, kind of an overlooked running back, the rookie for the Washington football team, Memphis. And he wasn't really used as a running back. He was used all over the place, so people didn't know if those skills would translate to an every-down running back. And he's sharing some time, but he has produced double digits every game since week two, averaging 15.9 a game, going against the 30th, excuse me, 30th defense against the run in the Detroit Lions, the worst overall defense. He's a dual threat. They'll need to rely on him heavy with Alex Smith starting this week. So I'm going to go with Antonio Gibson. Uh, Dan, I don't know if this is weird to talk
0: about, but... Oh, boy. I... <laughs> If you're like a Detroit lineman or linebacker, are you, like, easing up when you're about to hit Alex Smith or are you just yeah, going that's good for question. the legs? I, I don't, don't
1: think they care. No. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I don't think they care at all. <laughs> thank that's... God Greg Williams isn't their D yes, coordinator. Yes, thank God is right. Thank God is right. Did you see the hit, the safety for that rookie Ashton Davis put on Cam Newton the other I day? I
0: like Ashton Davis. From Kale. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about one NFL game we're excited to watch this week. And, Dan, I'll start it's the battle of the rookie quarterbacks. Pick. Yeah, it's it's the Chargers who, man, they've had, they've had some tough, tough luck. They feel like the Bills of the early 2000s because, man, they just can't catch a break. And going up against another rookie quarterback in Tua, and Dan, I said it from the beginning, a little bit of a bold take that I'm a Herbert is greater than Tua guy. And uh, let's see if that pans out. I hope it does. I think the Chargers are certainly due. And that can certainly help us give us a little bit of a, a cushion, if you will, in this AFC East race. And
1: yeah. and Miami's fun to watch. Yeah, that, that that's a great pick. And I obviously I do hope the Chargers win. I don't want Miami anywhere nearest with the the rest of their schedule they have compared to what the Bills have. But I'm gonna go with Seattle versus the Rams. I wanna know if Seattle can bounce back after that loss. The Rams are actually favored, which I think is pretty wild. They have a chance to pull even at six and three in the division. They have a prolific offense. I hope it's another back-and-forth shootout that will at least be entertaining to watch. Let's talk about tonight's game, Bill. Another game that I was thought about picking for the game of the week. It's another game that I we should have large rooting interest if you're a Bills fan. You better be um, rooting for the Colts tonight. I think that Colts, I, deep down, I really do think that uh, they're going to lose. It's a, But it is a chance for me to pull even as well. Big game in the AFC standings. I'm going to go 26-20 Indy because I'm going to bet with my heart. Yeah, I'm going 24-19 Tennessee,
0: and I'm excited to watch the game because I haven't watched any of Indy yet, but everything that I've kind of heard about and seen, it seems like the thing that's holding them back could be, I mean, he's had a couple big games, went Philip Phillip Rivers, so I'm excited to watch him play. It's a really good offensive line. And that's a really good defense in Indianapolis.
1: All-time Phillip Rivers clip of him trying to tackle that dude that picked up the fumble when he tripped over his own feet. Cass was crying, laughing, watching that.
0: Last one, Philip Rivers from NC State. Bang.
1: All right, that will do it. We are wrapping up episode 29. Thank you to our guests, Ian Harditz and Jimmy Abbott. We'd also like to thank, of course, Daily Buffalo 716 for letting us be a partner podcast, as well as the Buffalo Fanatics Group for letting us be a podcast contributor. We hope that we're coming back with some more good Bills news. We have two guests lined up next week, Bill. Episode 30 may be coming early. <laughs> All right, that will do it. Love you, Mom. I know.